what we're trying to do is create a California and an America and a world in which we are not ruled by politicians, in which we are not represented or fake represented by politicians, but actually represented by people close to us, people we might even know. Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, but today we have a special guest. We are in California this week demanding more politicians. And Stephen, you're you're supposed to have that look on your face, which is what? Yeah, that, that's definitely not what we're doing. Yes, it's definitely not what we're doing. Yeah. And uh, it would it would probably be what someone who wanted to undercut what we're doing would would charge. What we're trying to do is create a California and an America and a world in which we are not ruled by politicians, in which we are not represented or fake represented by politicians, but actually represented by people close to us, people we might even know, people who are not career politicians. Wait a minute, uh, Paul, are we talking about citizen government? Yes, yes. That's crazy talk, isn't it? <laughs> it is It is sort of crazy talk in that it's almost as if no one believes that's even possible. Uh, and, and one of the reasons we're in California is because this problem across the, the country, which is the problem of we have a representative democracy that the representative part is broken. And nowhere is it more broken than in California. And and so I'll I'll kind of get to the numbers real quick and and uh and then I'll I'll introduce Stephen. But in California, the average, you know, the the rough number of people in a assembly district is half a million people. And that's uh there are 40 million people in the state. There are 80 assembly members in the Senate. There are 40. So it's roughly a million people in that district. That creates the sort of districts that you, you know, you have to have money to reach people because you can't walk, you can't knock the half a million doors. You not only need money, you need connections with the entrenched political interests that have already been built up and control so much of, of the status quo. And so it's it's just ripe for control by big money, by special interests. And uh, and the, the way to do something about it is to create districts that aren't so huge that the ability to get into the political uh, process is is made so difficult. And in California, it's not just the legislature that's a problem. In L.A. County, for instance, you have five supervisors for a county that has 10 million people. That's two million people. Each one of those supervisors is supposed to be representing. And um, and it, you know, it just doesn't have to be this way. And let me introduce uh, Stephen Erickson, who is the executive director of Citizens Rising. Citizens Rising is a new organization dedicated to 
encouraging people to look at this issue of smaller districts where you might actually know the person who represents you where uh and and steven lives in florida the, these days he's actually originally from new hampshire and uh uh it's a little bit different vibe in new hampshire and steven i think i'll let you explain you know how, what the new hampshire legislature is like and uh and take it from there Yes. Well, the, the citizens of New Hampshire are blessed with blessed to be governed by the most democratic governing body in the world. It's a 400 member uh, lower house in New Hampshire in which each uh, representative represents on average about 3000 citizens. So it's highly democratic. They are uh, uh, not paid. They get a little per diem to drive to Concord. Um, and, and when you look at government in New England in general, um, all of the numbers across the board tend to be uh, smaller districts, um, even, even in Massachusetts. So Massachusetts and California are a great uh, comparison that way, too. Um, not, as, not as radical as, as New Hampshire, but the results show when you look and you compare like two, these two uh Two blue states, Massachusetts and in California. Massachusetts has great schools. Massachusetts has good law enforcement. So that's kind of an, an apples to apples. Um, each are big cultural hubs. Each have a lot of universities, and you can you can really see the difference in the quality of surf of services. And and I would argue that um, th it's because of of the radically different district sizes across the board, local and state. I, I know the, the 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 ratio of of um, I think the Massachusetts lower house I don't know off the top of my head but it's it's under forty thousand I think it's around thirty thousand inhabitants per district but I'd have to check California being a half a million so that, that's a very very big difference. One of the big differences that it seems to make and and I usually compare it to New Hampshire because because I've I've done i haven't done as much politics in massachusetts but i have some in new hampshire mm -hmm. and the amount of money that is spent in some of these state rep districts and state senate districts in a place like california and in other places you know california is way off the you know way more than other people but in in a lot of the country you've got 50 and 75,000 and 100,000 person uh districts and those lend themselves to being able to spend a lot of money demonizing people because you can say almost anything you want about someone because nobody knows who they are. And in New Hampshire, for instance, where you have 3,000 people, people just don't come in and spend a bunch of money. And the reason they don't is because it doesn't work. It's not, it's not that they've somehow passed a law and said, "Hey, you can't you can't do politics that way." They've created a system because of these small districts that you can do politics that way if you want, but you're gonna lose. We know nobody does politics that way. We know something's wrong, right? When all that money starts getting poured into a tiny district, you know there's some kind of corrupt, manipulative interest behind it. So you know something's wrong. I mean, there, there's something I like to say to people that that everybody understands, regardless of your political persuasion, right? 
the the in in the in the current system based on these on these humongous districts politicians raise vast amounts of money from from the same interests they regulate from business interests from public unions sometimes these representatives become the ideological playthings of the very of the very wealthy they raise huge amounts of money and they take that money and they turn around and market themselves to their own constituency to, to, to their own constituents so this is a system that resembles bribery extortion and marketing far more than it does actual representative democracy that's what we have so how do we move from a system that's based on <laughs> bribery extortion and marketing to one in which we elect people based not on marketing but uh, we, we like people who we trust because that that is what the founders intended we would elect neighbors and from small districts uh that if we didn't if we didn't know the person we were going to vote for at least that person would be a, a few degrees of separation from us that person would have a reputation within our community so we, we would be we would be electing people based on their their personal uh, reputations and and uh it's it's high time we ask the question you know at what point is uh an electoral district so big that uh the idea of citizen representation is effectively rendered meaningless just as a uh, a note to people yeah. you know you think of these california districts we've talked about but congressional districts on average are 760,000 people and I would submit that somewhere long before 760,000 person districts, the district has gotten too big. Yeah. And the ability to get someone who really represents and is part of the community in the way that I think was originally envisioned is gone. You know, I love to talk about the, the origins of this. So I'll just do that now. So <laughs> you have a book, uh, uh, Stephen's an author and and. What's the title of the book? Would well, you mean my history? But what would Madison do? Book? Yes. Or, or, or I thought you meant. I have another book about about that involves cannibalism, and, and that's closely related to politics because <laughs> politicians frequently eat their own. But um, so at the Constitutional Convention, George Washington spoke only once, and it was at the end. And uh, the the great hero of the Revolution used his uh, his popularity and his, his prestige sparingly. So they were going to create house districts with 40,000 inhabitants each. And Washington finally stood and he said no. He said that he, he believed that um, American citizens would be more secure in their, in their rights and interests if districts were 30,000 inhabitants. So Washington thought 30,000 was a good number. Now they are 760,000. And he, he, he advocated for these smaller districts so that people would be electing neighbors they knew and trust based on their local reputations. And these would be people that they could count on to, to not just serve their own interests, but also balance the, the interests of various, the various regions of the, of the U of the new young nation. Problem is that, that, uh, and of course, Washington, Washington's prestige was such that, that his proposal passed by acclamation and 30,000 is a number found in the constitution. But the anti-federalists were not satisfied with this. And for some good reason, because 30,000 was, was actually uh, a minimum size and not a maximum size. So it really didn't solve the problem. 
So in in the anti-federalist conventions, uh, they were they were up in arms, uh, or this is actually at the ratifying conventions. The the uh, the, the federalist anti-federalists were up in arms in many places, especially New York, where they talked a lot about this. Um, so concern about the the growth of house districts was one of a number of of issues that 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 they cared about and and so after the constitution uh was ratified by a sufficient number of states and the first congress was seated madison rose to offer uh the first amendments to the constitution which would become our bill of rights now here's something i bet almost nobody out there knows the first amendment to the constitution proposed by james madison is not the one which we are all familiar with it's nothing about freedom of association and freedom of the press and speech it was an amendment that would have limited the, the size of house districts he didn't specify the size those were left blank but the fact that this was the 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 first amendment proposed suggests this issue's importance to the founding generation and uh, eventually they crafted an amendment that um, would have allowed districts to grow as population grew to 50,000 or, or to the point where there would be 200 members of the U.S. House. But the fact is, after that, they just didn't know what to do. Because in, in, a, in a sprawling nation that uh, was enormous and, and small towns scattered out in the wilderness, um, it, the the, the the burden of getting representatives to a distant capital was was very severe. And they had already found out uh, that that communities in the hinterland would become frustrated because they weren't well represented and they would actually rise in rebellion. You have rebellions in the Carolinas during the colonial period and Shays Rebellion in Massachusetts and later the Whiskey Rebellion. So so um, the the problem of of logistics, the logistics of, of actually keeping districts small was really formidable. And I like to say that the technology begins to solve the problem in the 19th century. You get the railroads, right? So, so the trains can begin to move, can move uh, representatives to to Washington with, with some efficiency. Now we are in the information age, a time when we regularly work from home, we learn from home, we're connected on the web. During COVID, our our legislators were already legislating from home because because we locked everything down, right? So, is there any reason? that in the information age, we couldn't significantly, dare I say radically, meaning radical in the sense of going back to the root, have configure our political system into, into quite small uh, legislative con and congressional districts of the sort imagined by George Washington, connect them on the web, and based, base our representatives at home among their own constituents, the people they're supposed to represent. And if we were to do this, we solve almost dare i say almost all of our our big problems in in politics uh we would have citizen government and not government by by professional politicians and special interests and one of the interesting things about uh and and maybe scary for some people because you know i, I started out saying you know uh we're, we're trying to get you know more politicians or whatever mm -hmm. anytime someone says those two words together more and politicians you know, everyone wants to run for the hills. It's scary. Yeah. And of course, the problem is not the more, the problem is the politicians. And 
And so let me kind of explain to folks who may not kind of see the dynamics of this a little bit. If, uh, for instance, in, in California, if you were to go to what I think is a 20,000 person state house district, state assembly districts, instead of half a million, well, you're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,200 assemblymen. Or That's 1,800, 1,800 to 20. There you go. Yeah. And it's and and that's a lot of folks. Now, if you're going to do it the traditional way, people would be thinking, well, how do we get a building that will hold all these people and where do we put their offices and everything else? But as Stephen just pointed out, technology allows us to do a lot of this today very seamlessly. And the truth is, I think there's a lot of people in California who would rather that their assemblyman or senator vote on measures from their district, not from Sacramento. And I know from having talked to so many people and dealt, you know, worked on term limits and so on, which is where Stephen and I first met, uh, he worked for U.S. term limits back in the day, um, that, you know, in, in Congress, if we were to go to 30,000 member districts, I believe it's about 6,000 uh, congressman. And I think we do want people to get together. Uh, and so we would want to facilitate uh, on occasion and for short periods of time to bring people together in California and Sacramento and the United States of America and Washington, D.C., or maybe maybe pick somewhere else, uh, but uh, but bring people together. But the idea that they have to constantly be away from us and living with the vipers of of politics, uh, hanging out with lobbyists and reading instead of the local newspaper, reading the Washington Post and the New York Times and following suit. Um, and then maybe that's just a little of my bias against those papers, but you read, read what you want. But I like the idea of someone casting a vote in Congress and then walking outside and seeing their constituents, not the lobbyists, but their constituents. And that's, uh, so one of, I think, the, the wonderful byproducts of going to these smaller districts is that you have to restructure government in such a way that you don't have this cabal in Washington always. You have power and, and the powerful citizen representatives dispersed throughout the country. The thing that's perceived as the greatest weakness is sometimes the greatest strength, right? So, and and what you say is like one one aspect of this, but but they wouldn't be close together. They wouldn't collaborate as well. Well, that's debatable, but they will certainly be with their own constituents, which I think is a, is, is a a greater advantage. Similarly, people say, "Oh my gosh, a thousand eighteen hundred representatives. How will they get anything done?" The work of government is done in committees. Right now, uh, whether it's in Sacramento or Washington, D.C., our elected officials are, are, are scattered over many committees. And even if they weren't spending most of their time fundraising and politicking, they cannot do, do justice to their, their many committee assignments. It's too much. So as a result, their staffs actually do that work. So They're unelected staffs. They're unelected staffs. But... If, if we had real citizen government with with a thousand representatives or 1800 you know not only could 
could we we uh, we get all these committees covered really well? We could multiply the committees. We could have many more. We could have far better government oversight, and we could tap into the the vast profession the the vast range of professional expertise we have among our people. So so whether if you have a uh, you could have committees on water use here in California, we talk a lot about about water. You'd have uh, on on uh, vaccines or or uh, healthcare costs. The the you could have very specific targeted committee work, and you could have unprecedented uh, citizen oversight over government. So, in fact, uh, and 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 these committees, of course, would be free to gather in person at times too. There's no reason you couldn't do that. As you said, you're on a plane and have a committee meeting somewhere, maybe maybe in some relevant location to the committee's work. So, so the big number shouldn't be seen as scary. It's an opportunity for the people to to take control of their own government. Now, on less is more, this less more problem, which is, I guess, what you're looking at is as a sort of a publicity issue. How do mm-hmm. you convince people of less and more? Well, Stephen, you mentioned the key word, didn't you? Ratio a while back. Mm-hmm. Does the word ratio help? Can you get Americans to understand that ratios matter? Yeah, um, maybe. I I think the key is to is to that they know we are not multiplying politicians. We that the idea is is to have fewer professional politicians, and and to have citizen government. And maybe that means we have to pay them part time. Um, that that would be one one way. I see as an added advantage because yeah. I think one of the biggest problems we have is people get into government. One of the reasons we need term limits is they get into an elective office mm. and they stay and stay and stay and they stay because it's a great job because the pay is high and they've got everybody, mm. you know, uh, stroking them and telling them how wonderful they are. And, you know, if you, if you think back to the beginnings of the country, they talked about making sacrifices to serve in office. It mm-hmm. was a big sacrifice. It was going to cost you money because you're away from, you know, what what you do for a living and the pay was not so outrageous. And, you know, they today they always talk about how hard they work and all the sacrifices they make. But most members of Congress are making more as members of Congress than they made in their previous employment. And so it's it's a great job with a wonderful pension and everything else. And uh, and we we have to protect it against that. So that's a, it's actually an uh, again by restructuring because of the numbers, it it helps us in a whole bunch of other ways. Mm-hmm. And ratios are tough for people. Math is uh, math is uh, is maybe not the uh, the common man's uh, or even this common man's best uh, subject, but the ratios are important. And I think I think you know someone can scare people. Oh, we don't need more politicians. Stephen's right. The key is this isn't more politicians. This is more representatives. That term has become a euphemism for unrepresentative, and we need to turn it back into representatives. You know, uh, Tim, one of the uh, things that people worry about is cost, because if you can have all these these new reps, isn't it going to cost a lot of money? So obviously, part time would be one solution. By the way, we're not we're for small districts under under 30,000 inhabitants. And then from there, we want a debate and discussion. So we don't have any positions other than that. So we, we are trying to get um, 
a revolution for small district democratic representation going. And, and that's that's our only criteria is that the districts must be under 30,000. So we we want a healthy debate about all of these issues. So so when I say, well, we could they could be part time. It's not like that's written in stone. It's it's just just an idea. But uh, in for the cost issue, because if, you, if you're concerned about numbers, I think this is important. Uh, I did a little little back of the envelope math. I believe that here in California, um, if you eliminated all of the legislative staff, that would pay for about two thirds of the of the of a, an assembly of I think it was twelve hundred uh, representatives who would in effect be their own staff. So so if people who are I, I would argue that simply restructuring all this and putting all this power in the hands of people will will lead to fiscal much better fiscal management. So so this is like hiring efficiency experts to to trim the size of government so even if you paid them all and they even kept their staffs i, I still think you'd save a lot of money but let's suppose you don't do that if you cut all the staffs you, that, that will go a long ways towards paying for this even if you assume they're uh getting their the, their current salary which is pretty high that's an excuse to do nothing if you start uh complaining about the the the, the cost of this we I, I wish i wish everyone were as concerned about the cost of government as they are uh, the cost of uh, expanding the people's voice in government. It's funny because being a small government guy uh, across the board and always wanting to, you know, reduce what the government's spending, I've noticed that there are occasions when folks who are on the other side all the time from me start to complain about the cost. And it seems like it's always when it comes to having an election, mm-hmm. you know, having a recall election just costs too much money. Yeah. And, and, uh, and yeah. you know, maybe I'm not being fair, but somehow it seems to me that it's not really the money that's their problem. Yeah. It's the democratic process that they want to avoid. They don't want to spend any money on, on having a vibrant representative system and yeah. a democratic process, but they're more than willing to shovel out money to every special interest so that they can get the votes to stay in office term after term. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm just thinking about folks who might be listening to this right now. Um, so Paul and I have been traveling throughout California and this is this is my third trip here. And and what's very clear is this is completely nonpartisan issue among ordinary people. Right. This is not a left right issue. We have people on the far left who are supporting us. We have people on the far right and everybody in between. This is an issue of the people versus the system. And we know what's going to what, what will happen as this goes forward. We're, we're going to we're going to be demonized by the establishment who will claim we're on one side or the other. Um, but but this is a, a, a people versus the, the system uh, issue. And there's potentially great power behind it if we can get organized, because there's I, I would argue there's a popular consensus about a lot of things. And, and one is that is that we have a corrupt political establishment. And the people need to reassert their authority. Do you agree with that, Paul? Yes, and and I, I was just going to say, uh, you know, the the problem's not going away, and I think everybody, you know, with a couple, couple of exceptions, but er, almost everyone recognizes we're not being represented. We don't feel like the government works for us. And it'd be one thing if people who voted for, you know, Joe Smith who won the last election uh, felt good and the people who lost the last, last election felt bad. 
but we live in a system in which we're upset when we win the election because the guys that are getting elected don't represent us. And and in other words, when you have a Republican uh, Congress, some of the most bitter folks are Republicans who, mm-hmm. you know, they, they prefer these guys over the Democrats or, or vice versa. You know, when there's a Democratic Congress, you know, I hear Democrats bitterly complaining because they're not they're not our guys. They're not our representatives. And, and that's the key problem. And that's not going away. But I do think from, you know, the number one negative that will be thrown up to scare people is these are going to be a bunch of politicians looking for ways to spend money, looking for ways to cause problems. And we're all scared to death of politicians. So that may have some impact. What I think is likely to happen because don't of that. you guys interrupt for saying don't you want to see that campaign uh, uh, the uh, political establishment spokesperson comes out and says you don't want more people like us in power so <laughs> vote against this proposal <laughs> no i think that's right <laughs> wait until we see that ad yeah but but i think what's likely to happen because of that is we will see more of this happening at the local level where, for instance, I think I mentioned earlier, L.A. County, uh, Los Angeles City uh, is a big place where lots of people, they have 15 council members. Uh, and and so some of these localities where you've got five supervisors in a county or 15 city council uh, members in a multi-million person city could double and triple that number. And the numbers don't get so you know large and unusual and i think i think that's likely to happen uh there is a crisis of corruption in local government throughout california and we all know throughout the whole country and uh and and so i think it's likely to start at that local level where it will be tougher for the bad guys the folks who want to keep everything like it is now very unrepresentative for us and very lucrative for them, and uh, and and so they'll they'll go crazy and apoplectic, and they'll scare people when the numbers get big in terms of the number of politicians. So I think we're likely to see this happen at the local level, and I think it'll work, and then I think it'll it'll spread. Yeah, and we're we're talking to a lot of uh, uh, local people at this stage because we think it's the most promising strategic approach to the problem. One thing that's really interesting that Americans don't realize necessarily is that um, some of the greatest cities in the world are governed by city legislatures. So the Economist magazine has been ranking the most livable cities in the world for many years now. And for 2022, the three most livable cities were in this order, Vienna, Copenhagen and, and Zurich. One thing all three of these cities have in common is they're all governed by city legislatures. So uh, in the case of um, Vienna, they have one representative per 20,000 inhabitants. For Copenhagen, it's one for 15,000. And for Zurich, it's one for th- every 3,500 city residents. So these, the, and these are not professional politicians. They're people paid part-time and they govern their own cities. It's crazy. And, and, and the good results show based on you know how livable and relatively efficient these places are 
So where would a person go to find more about uh, this movement? Well, you should come to our website, which is citizensrising.org, and sign up. would love to have you join. There's uh, good information there, and uh, and you can... You can, you know, give your your uh, email info and so on and and stay up with what's happening. We are at the early stages here. Uh, this is this is a very old idea, but it seems new to everybody because we've gotten away from it. Exactly. But I think that, uh, you know, I've been involved with a lot of different reform issues. To me, this is the most at the root of the problem of and therefore you know the most radical uh but radical in a good way not not the way that sometimes people think of that radical it's, from the roots these are the roots of our political system and common sense in the in mm -hmm. the sense of look are you going to get better representation are we going to be are we going to be dealt with as real citizens who should be listened to if we're one of 3,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 constituents for a representative, or are we going to be dealt with uh, uh, better if we're one of 500,000 or 700,000 or a million? And I think we all instinctively can do that math, which is we're going to get better representation the, the better the ratio is. And, and that's why smaller districts are, are I think, the most important reform that could be made. Amen. That sounds like the end of a podcast. It sure does. I like it. And okay. then we get to uh, Sacramento with maybe a few minutes to spare. I can get my uh, second Starbucks or my eighth or my 27th. I can take a shower and not be stinky in the car. <laughs> Tim, great to meet you. Good to meet you. Good luck in your uh, endeavors, guys. So that was This Week in Common Sense, except that it wasn't, was it? Really, It's a special episode. Normally on This Week in Common Sense, Paul goes to the five stories that he writes for the website, thisiscommonsense.org, and runs through each of the stories and talks about them and highlights usually one or two of the stories uh, in a big way. Today we're not doing that because Paul is on the road in California talking up citizen control of government, which has been his theme for a long time. Is there a theme on the website this week, though? I'll go through the five stories as we conclude this podcast, just just to do what we normally do if in a minor and not very important way. But let's let's just go through it. On Monday, we had inherent racism of racism, and that's about New Hampshire's ban on teaching critical race theory. Uh, it's an interesting story, an ongoing one around the nation as we fight uh, racism and of the anti-racists who are racists. Uh, it gets a little complicated uh, and it's very controversial. Lightfoot Heavy Hand uh, is about uh, Lori Lightfoot, Chicago mayor. And uh, she um, had a slight abuse of power and uh, taking some privileges, getting, this is a funny story, getting high school students to uh, work on her campaign for high school credit. Uh, it's it's the kind of thing politicians do, and it's, you know, it's not good. Uh, but almost everything with Lori Lightfoot, even when it's horrific, is kind of funny. So you got to keep track of her stories. You know, it's just it's it's, it's part of America today. Uh, Motown Bully goes east to Detroit. And uh, Paul reflects on the nature of Republican government 
That's Motown Bully. It's on Wednesday at thisiscommonsense.org. On Thursday, there's How Congress Works, and Paul discusses Glenn Greenwald's analysis of what is going wrong in politics today and uh, just how messed up it truly is. And finally, Earmarked Nation on Friday. That's Earmarked Nation at thisiscommonsense.org, and we're talking about the return, the big-time return of earmarks. It's been going for a while. Nancy Pelosi consolidated power, you know, when the Democrats came back in the House, and uh, in both the House and the Senate, earmarks came back big time after Republicans pushed them to the side for a while. Remember back in the uh, 2010, 2011, 2012 period? But now they're back. And that whole thing with uh, McCarthy and the House leadership role, the Speaker, well, a deal was made to nix earmarks, but uh, the earmarks in the last omnibus bill were chilling, to say the least. Quite a mess. Oink, 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 America. That's it. That was on the website this week. See you next week. Paul may be back in the office, not on the road not doing something for citizensrising.org. But until then, you can always go to citizensrising.org and thisiscommonsense.org, two of his projects.